Let's uh, pray before we uh, turn to the passage that's before us. Father, once again, we look to you to come and bless us and teach us. Uh, We need your help. We cannot do this by ourselves, but with you, all things are possible. Lead us now by your spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are continuing now in in Matthew chapter 9. And what we've been seeing uh, in these studies in Matthew's gospel is that Jesus' words on one hand and Jesus' deeds on the other hand set side by side, showing who he is. Showing who he is. His wisdom and his power revealing his identity. His identity as king and as God. And and so far in 8 and 9, chapters 8 and 9, we've seen his power over disease, his power over nature, his power over evil, his power over sin. And through it all, we've witnessed, of course, his love and compassion to those of us who have been affected by all these things. Now, we see his power over death. And these chapters are showing us that there's nothing in the universe, absolutely nothing in the universe, that's beyond the power of Jesus. He really is the king. He's God. He's sovereign over all things. And now we see his sovereignty over death, the great enemy, the thing that we fear, probably, most of all. Now, the Old Testament painted a very powerful picture of who Jesus is and what he would do when he comes. And the details are so clear in the Old Testament that it's difficult to miss it. In fact, you only miss it if you want to miss it. Mighty acts of love, mercy and power, leading to gladness and joy. And that's why we began with Isaiah 35. We could have picked many other passages, but that's the one uh, I was drawn to. Because there, he's revealed what he's going to be like and what he will do. Now, of course, not all will embrace Jesus. And the Old Testament pointed that out as well. Isaiah 53 said that Jesus would be despised and rejected by men. So we know that too. But the point is, the Old Testament reveals who Jesus is. What he would be like. And what he would do. And so, Matthew gives us eyewitness evidence of the authority of Jesus. And guess what? Jesus did exactly what you would expect God to do. He did exactly what you would expect the King, the Messiah, to do. Power over all things. Like sickness and sin and evil and nature. Powerful acts of mercy and love. He did it again and again and again. All of it, proof of his identity. This this is who Jesus is. He's the promised one. He really is the king. And there's no doubt. And there's plenty of proof. And here in our passage today, we have another set of miracles to help us understand these things. First of all, we see um, Jesus and the ruler, verses 18 and 19. While he was saying this, uh, a ruler came and knelt before him and said, My daughter has just died, but come and put your hand on her and she will live. Jesus got up and went with him, and so did his disciples. Now, if you're aware of the story in Mark's gospel or Luke's gospel, you know they give 
a lot more detail than Matthew does. Matthew gives very few details about this man. And the reason seems to be that Matthew does not want anyone to be distracted by these details. He just, he just wants to get to the point that this story and all the others, these miracles, are pointing to the identity of Jesus. Now, we know from the other accounts that this guy's called Jairus. He's a synagogue ruler. He's a man in charge. But look, look how he comes. He comes and shows immense amount of respect and faith. Verse 18. While he was saying this, a ruler came and knelt before him. He shows immense faith in Jesus. And notice also that um, he's heartbroken and he's desperate. In fact, he's hopeless. Why? My daughter has just died. Can you imagine anything worse? But listen to what he says at the end of verse 18. But come and put your hand on her and she will live. Now, doing what he's just done, i.e. getting down on his knees before Jesus, saying what he's just said, puts him at odds with all his friends in the religious system, the, the Jewish religious system. But there's no fear in his heart in front of his friends. For him, this was worth it because only Jesus could change the hopeless situation that he found himself in. I mean, can you imagine saying the words, my daughter is dead, but... Can you imagine being able to say that? He believed in Jesus. He believed in his power over death. What a statement of, of trust and faith and confidence. That word but is very important. There is hope for his hopeless situation. Something can be done. But I think the point we need to see here is this. Don't just marvel at Jesus Christ from a distance. Don't say, oh, what a wonderful person he is. Come close. Show faith. Show trust. Show confidence in who he is. Because that's what he wants. And that's why the story is here for us. And we need to learn this particular point. And verse 19, the response of Jesus is, is very clear. Jesus got up and went with him, and so did his disciples. He gives this man hope as he goes with him. Hope in a hopeless situation. But secondly, let's see Jesus and the woman, verse 20 to 22. Just then, a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years came up behind him, touched the edge of his cloak. She said to herself, if I only touch his cloak, I will be healed. Jesus turned and saw her. Take heart, daughter, he said. Your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed from that moment. This unnamed woman is the second desperate, hopeless person in this series of stories. And again, the point is, is to let us focus on Jesus and his identity. In many ways, we could say she was in a nightmare situation, desperate situation. No one could help her. We've got to understand the context here. Because of her condition, she would have been weak due to her ongoing condition. 
ceremonially unclean in the sense she was never allowed to worship or go near a place of worship. She was poor, having spent all that she had on doctors. We know that from Mark. And she was lonely because no man would have stayed married to her. As one commentator put it, perhaps a wee bit over the top, but I think there's a fair amount of truth in it. She was not dead, but she may as well have been. She may well have been dead to her community, dead to her religion. Hopeless. A hopeless situation. But she sees hope in Jesus. She sees Jesus the only source of gladness and joy, just like Isaiah 35 says. And so uh, we see faith in action. Verse 21, she said to herself, if I only touch his cloak, I I will be healed. Now, it's a dolly mixture of superstition and, and biblical faith. We can see that. It's strong in the sense that she doesn't need an audience with Jesus, but it's weak in the sense that she needed, needed to touch something. But Jesus saw faith the size of a mustard seed, tiny faith. And he responded to that faith. And her touch brought two things together, tiny, immature faith and the power of the Messiah together. And healing resulted. So what we have in this double story are two miserable devastating, hopeless situations coming under the lordship of Jesus. A man with a dead daughter, a woman as good as dead, but Jesus bringing hope. So what about you today? There must be people here in this building today who are listening to this message via the different ways later, there must be people who are in a hopeless situation. And the world's let you down. Science, medicine's let you down. People maybe have let you down. And you're concerned Do you see hope in Jesus? Do you see hope in the power of Jesus? Hope because of your sadness, your loneliness, your pain, your worry, your moral failures, your doubts, your anger. My daughter is dead, but come. Put your hand on her and she will live. Hopelessness to hope. If only I touch his cloak, I will be healed. Hopelessness to hope. Whatever the issue is, we have got to be a people who says, but you, but you, whatever the problem is, We've got to be in the position where we say, if only I'd reach out and touch him. And things like guilt and loneliness and hurt will melt away in the power 
of his love and his grace. Verse 22 is so tender, isn't it? It's beautiful. Hope in a hopeless situation. Verse 22, Jesus turned and saw her. Take heart, daughter, he said. Your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed from that moment. This is the only time Jesus called anyone daughter. Now, why do you think he called her daughter? I mean, who's listening to this conversation? Jairus. And what was Jairus's problem? His daughter is dead. I think Jesus said it not for her sake, but for his sake. And I think he was saying, Jairus, one daughter is healed through my power and her faith. Jairus, I'm asking you to put your faith in my power for your daughter. Hope in a hopeless situation. Do you see what we're being called to do? Do we understand his ways? No. But the only source of hope we have is in him. The third incident is really Jesus and the little girl, verse 23 to 26. When Jesus entered the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the noisy crowd, he said, go away. The girl is not dead but asleep. But they laughed at him. And after the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took the girl by the hand, and she got up, and news of this spread through all that region. Remember, what was required here was um, a resurrection, not a healing. I mean, would you believe in that situation? Could you believe in that situation? Here's what I see in myself and in the people I minister to. Despite everything we've been given, all the evidence, all the proof, all the support, we can be, I can be, we can be so faithless and so arrogant. And we sort of say, hey, what do you know about my problems? And what can you do about my problems? Who are you to say this and this and this? We do have delusions of grandeur, don't we? And we need to get down on our knees and show humility before a holy God rather than arrogance or doubt or self. Well, what we see here in 23 and 24 is that the usual Jewish funeral was underway. Loud wailing, sackcloth and ashes. You brought the professional wailers in and they were um, doing their thing. But what Jesus does, that he brings a halt to this funeral. And the reason being, verse 25, is death was not going to have the last word in this story. Death was not going to win. Verse 25, after the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took the girl by the hand, and she got up. The mourners laugh at him, but Jesus raises the wee girl to life. Mark tells us that he says, Tal- Talitha Kuum, I hope I'm saying that properly. Basically, it says, honey, it's time to get up. Isn't that beautiful? And Jesus is saying, if I have you by the hand, death itself 
is nothing but sleep. You see, there's hope here in this hopeless situation. And can you imagine the little girl? Some of you are 12, the age that um, she was. Can you, the first words she heard would have been from the lips of Jesus. And uh, the first sight that she would have seen was the face of Jesus. What a privilege. But of course, it's going to be exactly the same for us. The time we die. Or when we see him if he comes in our lifetime. What we see here is death and resurrection. A beautiful picture of what Jesus would come to do. Cross, tomb, resurrection. Story for us and our encouragement. Hope and hopeless situations. And verse 26, as you can imagine, news of this spread throughout the whole region. Could this be the Messiah? Could this be the king? Could Isaiah 35 be fulfilled in this man? Gladness and joy for the weak earl. Gladness and joy for the unnamed woman. Gladness and joy for Jairus. Hope in the face of death. Yeah, we will die. This body, doesn't matter how fit your body is, is not fit for eternity but we will be raised to new life for a new heaven and a new earth, all in Jesus and for Jesus. Two powerful stories. I would suggest they're the highlights of chapters 8 and 9. Because we've seen Jesus' lordship over disease, and then nature, and then evil, and then sin, and then death. I mean, it's the highlight as far as we as human beings are concerned. The thing that we fear the most probably This would be a good time to stop, wouldn't it, for Matthew? A good time to move on to the next section of Matthew's gospel. But we have these two extra miracles tagged on to the end. Why are they here? Jesus healing two blind men and one mute man. Now, these two parables are hardly in the top ten of miracles, if you're kind of grading them. I mean, if Jairus' daughter's Resurrection is, um, is top of the Premier League kind of miracle. Then these two miracles that we have here, with due respect to the individuals, are kind of bottom of the championship. So why are they included? And why are they included here? What is God saying to us? Because remember, even the order of what is said has significance for you and me. For us. Well, there's all kinds of theories. You could well believe it. But there's two that I think are best and I want to share with you this morning. And I think um, the first one is this. It's final proof of who Jesus is. Do you remember what we read from Isaiah 35, verse 5? Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue Shout for joy. Blind eyes opened. Mute tongues shout for joy. What's happening here in Matthew chapter 9? Well, blind eyes are opened and a mute tongue shouts for joy. Exactly this. And I think what Matthew is saying, hey, if you haven't got it yet, 
With all this eyewitness accounts that are given to you, if the penny hasn't dropped yet, if it hasn't dawned on you yet, maybe now it will. Because remember, well, the people who would have read Isaiah, or Matthew 8 and 9 would have known Isaiah 35. And Matthew's saying, Please understand who Jesus is. He really is the Messiah. He really is the King. He really is God. And I'm going to show you with two more stories who it is. Get it. Understand it. Perfectly fulfilling all the Old Testament prophecies and promises. Perfectly playing the role of the King. Perfectly displaying deity. Do you see it? Your King, your God, your Messiah. I thought I'd put that up there in my little bit of excitement. But the second reason I think that Matthew puts on these two healings, by the way, which he could have just simply included with all the extras, you know, the ones at the end of the day, Jesus did this and this and this. He could have added that in there, but why did he put it here? I think because he wants us to consider two questions. One to do with sight, and want to do with our speech. What do you see and what do you say? What do you see and what do you say? Again, two, three totally helpless, hopeless men. Again, they find their help and their hope in Jesus. Just like Jairus the ruler, just like the unnamed woman, just like the little girl, But the way the details are given, the way things happen, the way words are spoken, lead many, including myself, to believe that God is asking us these two questions. When you see all that Jesus said and does, when you see what he said and what he did, what exactly do you see and what exactly do you say? In many ways, we're thinking about our response. Our response Jesus. Let's see where this takes us. First, 27 to 31. As Jesus went out from there, two blind men followed him, calling out, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he had gone indoors, the blind men came to him, and he asked them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? Yes, Lord, they replied. Then he touched their eyes and said, According to your faith will it be done to you. And their sight was restored. Jesus warned them sternly, see that no one knows about this, but they went out and spread the news about him all over that region. Two blind men. Physically, they couldn't have seen any of Jesus' miracles. None of them. Not not the, the coming of the sea, not his authority over disease or or, or sin or evil, or even death. They couldn't have seen any of it because they were blind. But they saw with their hearts. They saw with their souls. How do we know? Well, look what they ask in verse 27. Have mercy on us, son of David. They called Jesus son of David. Son of David is a messianic title. It's the title of the promised king. And Jesus accepts his title. He doesn't rebuke them and say, oh, I'm not the son of David. Don't be silly. He accepts it. 
And by his accepting it, he's saying, yes, I am the son of David. I am the king. And later in verse 28, he sort of tests them. He says, "Um, do you believe that I am able to do this? In other words, do you believe that I am the son of David? Really? They couldn't see with their eyes, but they could see with their hearts. They knew what the Old Testament promised. For instance, Isaiah 35. Our problem, by the way, sometimes we just don't know our Old Testaments. We don't know what's expected in Jesus. Therefore, when Jesus comes, we don't get excited. But these people would have been excited because they knew God's word. We need to know God's word. We need to get excited about who Jesus is. They couldn't see with their eyes, but they could see with their hearts. They knew that Jesus was fulfilling all these promises because they'd heard all the reports about what he had just done. And they saw with such amazing clarity. I wonder, do we? Do we see with clarity who Jesus is? And does it make a difference in our lives? They can't see the miracles, but they saw with their hearts. Here they they saw tragic irony here. Blind men see Jesus for who he is, and sighted men can't see Jesus for who he is. But there's more to that, just calling him son of David. What did they cry out for? Have mercy on us, son of David. They didn't say, give us sight, son of David. But have mercy on us. Because they saw that they needed something far more than sight. They needed salvation. It's a bit like the paralytic, do you remember? His problem, his number one problem wasn't his legs, Number one problem was a sin. That's why Jesus said, I, I forgive you. And then he went on to fix his legs. But one we see Jesus kind of testing them. That's why, verse 28, he sort of ignores them. They cry out, have mercy on us, son of God. Jesus sort of bypasses him, goes into the house. Verse 28, when he had gone indoors, the blind men came to him and he asked them, do you believe that I am able to do this. Yes, Lord, they replied. I think the emphasis is on, do you believe that I, do you believe I can do this? And what follows is the amazing declaration of faith. Two words. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Physically, They're in a hopeless situation. Spiritually, they're in a hopeless situation. But they see and they believe that the only answer to their hopelessness is Jesus. And verse 29 and 30, divine mercy, divine healing, hope for these two guys. And verse 31, Jesus says, please, no distractions. We haven't got time to look at that. But I think we understand why they just couldn't keep it to themselves. They saw who he is. Do you see who Jesus is? The final miracle is verse 32 and 33. While they were going out, a man who was demon-possessed and could not talk was brought to Jesus. And when the demon was driven out, the man who had been mute spoke. And the, the crowd was amazed and said, nothing like this has ever been seen 
in Israel. Again, scant details. Almost a matter-of-fact reporting because, again, Matthew's point is not just to get wowing about the miracle, but to see what this second question is. What do you say? Because a mute man speaks. Now, we don't know what he actually said, but we do know what the crowd said at the end of verse 33. Nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. And we're told what the Pharisees said in verse 34. It is by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. So the crowds say nice things about Jesus. But as we're going to see as we continue in Matthew's gospel, there's no evidence of them believing Jesus or receiving Jesus or following Jesus. In fact, we're going to see that they didn't. Like many people today, oh, they say nice things about about Jesus, but don't believe. They say true things about Jesus, but don't follow. People today, maybe even right across our land in churches, they see evidence of the king, but they don't want to follow the king. And the Pharisees see the purest, holiest, most gracious and powerful God in action, and they reject him as demonic. With their mouths, the crowds marvel without following. And with their mouths, the Pharisees blaspheme Jesus as being evil. The crowds want to have the sick healed, the storms calmed, the evil defeated. Oh, they want all that, wouldn't you? But they don't want to follow the king. And they sort of say, oh, Jesus, do your, do your thing. In fact, we really like it when you do your thing. But don't bother us. Don't expect us to follow you. And the Pharisees, they reject him as evil. The power of Satan, he drives out demons. So as we conclude this morning, yeah, Matthew is asking us questions. We just aren't supposed to marvel at these wonderful stories, wonderful as they are. I'm excited that this little girl was raised from the dead. Of course I am. And I'm excited about this woman who was sick for so long and she was made well. Of course I am. But that's not the point. The point is, do you see who Jesus is? And what do you say about Jesus? Do you see that he is the son of David, the Messiah, the king? Or do you just see him as a genie in a lamp? Playing a few tricks? Or even worse, he's an evil madman. And what do you say? Do you say, oh, king, Messiah, savior, have mercy on me. Do you say, Yes, Lord. I don't understand everything. But I see enough and I understand enough to say, yes, Lord. Are you following the king? Because all this revelation is wasted if you don't. Are you his? Have you believed and received? Our greatest enemy is death. And Jesus destroys it. And God asks us, what do you see?
What do you say? By the way, these two stories, the first two, um, are included in one of the evenings of Christianity Explored. It's the final evening. It's the evening when people have an opportunity to actually take that step of faith. You don't have to wait to then. If you're not a believer, today's the day. Perhaps that God is calling you to himself. We'll gladly talk to you about this over tea or coffee. Father, thank you once again for giving us the opportunity to see who Jesus is. And we want to get beyond just marveling at him from a distance and showing him some kind of religious respect. But we want to see him as he is. And we want to say, yes, Lord. Lord, have mercy on us. We are rich people. Help us not to waste what you've given to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.